0: And as we get into Ephesians 2, if you've ever seen a good movie, oftentimes the the writer of the script will introduce a flashback. Some of these movies today, man, they they flash back, they flash forward. I don't know if you're in the present, in the back. And I mean, it's it's too much. Paul's not going to do that to us, but he is going to take us to a flashback. And the flashback is very strategic. It's not pretty. In fact, it's, as I've titled the message, dirty, dark, and despicable. It's, it's not a comfortable place to go. And yet at the same time, we've been considering in chapter one, the spiritual riches that we have in Jesus Christ. And you know what makes those riches even more incredible? is the spiritual bankruptcy that you and I were in before we gained those spiritual riches. It is truly the one all-time rags-to-riches story in the history of the world, except we're talking about spiritual riches. And so this morning, we want to consider this spiritual bankruptcy. We want to consider this desperately unimaginable position that every believer was in before they were born again. And you may even this morning, if you've never been through this section, you might even say, man, I didn't realize it was that bad. And if you think that, that's good. Because that's what this section is designed to do. It's flashing us back. And you know what? It's like Paul, even though he's flashing back, he cannot get away from the truths of chapter one. Because now he's going to give this one more glorious and amazing illustration of God's power. Because if you know who you are in Christ, you need to know where God took you from to get you there. And when you see that, that's going to blow your mind. It should. It should. It's another illustration of God's amazing power, which we've been dealing with in chapter one. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, that many people have this view that before they got saved, that they weren't as bad as the next person. They, they weren't quite as in need. You know, sometimes we'll even, say, we'll even say that, well, man, if that guy ever got saved, that would be a miracle. You know, if that girl ever got saved, man, she is a you know, horse's rear end and she's just difficult and challenging. And man, if she ever got saved, it's a, it would be a miracle. You know what? It was just as big a miracle that you ever got saved. Period. I mean, the, and, and sometimes I feel like this is how we viewed our trusting in Christ, how we got saved. It was like we were in a marathon You know, what's it? 26.2, right? That's the stickers, 26. So we ran 26.1. And then we just need a little bit of help across the finish line. And I think many of us view that way. Uh, Our pre-salvation life, oh, we weren't as bad as the next guy. We weren't as bad as them. We weren't engaged in all these simple activities. And you know, yeah, Jesus Christ died for me. And he kind of just got me the, the remaining amount past the finish line. When in reality, this is how we all actually are not even on the track, eating a hamburger, drinking a beer, sitting on our rear ends, not even moving, probably not even having our shoes tied. That's where we were. It was a little bit worse than we could have even imagined. This reminded me of a story, but I, I'm going to run out of, well, I'll tell it anyways. I, funny story, sophomore year in high school, I moved to Texas. I show up First time, first time I've ever been where they have athletic classes during the school day. I was like, this is heaven. Like I just go play sports for one of my classes, but they would make you sign up for the sport that you want to play. I wanted to play basketball. So I had to try out for basketball. I had good tryouts. I made the basketball team, but the coach called me in and he said, congratulations, John. He said, you've, you've made the cross country team. And I thought, what did my advisor do? She put me in the wrong, I started looking at my schedule. She put me in the wrong class. Well, no, I found out that my basketball coach was also the cross-country coach, and that was how he got his basketball players in shape for basketball season, which I hated. And anyways, this this empty stadium reminds me of that picture, and it illustrates it well. I was was at a cross-country meet. It was awesome. You know, what 15-year-old kid doesn't love waking up at 7 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday morning, driving up to school, hopping on these, you know, what we used to call the cheese wagon, you know, the big bus? and driving off to a cross-country meet where we would have to then run three miles. I mean, who doesn't want to do that at 15 years old, right? So we show up to these meets and oftentimes they would start you in a field and then they would finish you in a stadium so that mom and dad, if they came, my mom and dad never came to the cross-country meets, but they could be cheering you on as you ran into the stadium that last lap. And I remember there was this one course in particular, and. I was running and I was way behind the pack. And so I didn't see where everyone else went. I thought, well, there's the stadium I need to run into. So I started cutting across the field. And I was like, I I ran into the stadium and I was like, man, I don't see anyone behind me. I don't see anyone in front of me. I might, I think I might be first. Now, I don't know what I was doing during the race because I had seen everyone go out in front of me. I was the last one. But I ran into a completely empty stadium. And then I found out that the course had two stadiums. I was at the wrong one. And you know what? This is what Ephesians 2 is going to do for us this morning. Regardless of how good you thought you were before salvation, regardless of whether you thought you needed a nudge over the finish line or you needed Jesus Christ to actually pick you up and carry you, 26.2, that's the truth of the matter. We didn't need a helper. We didn't need a track coach. We needed a savior. We needed something much more than that. And, And Paul is going to really communicate that here in chapter two, and he does it through this phrase, being dead in trespasses, trespasses and sins. And so verse one says this, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And as if Paul hasn't given us enough run-on sentences yet, here's another one. Verse 1 to verse 7, another run-on sentence, 124 words in the Greek. He just is blitzing and blitzing. It's like he can't get his thoughts on paper down quick enough. He's just blitzing and running through it. And so in this case, we see this run-on sentence. Now that first phrase he made alive, if you've got an NASB, an ESV, and an IV, you're not going to see that there in verse one. It's totally okay. It's, it's actually not there in the original Greek. In fact, in the New King James, it's put in italics to let you know that it's not there. But where's he bringing that up from? Well, he's bringing that up from verse five. It is in the text and it's actually the main point of this section is that Christ made you alive when you were dead. That's the main point. But it's actually not there in verse 1. So we're going to consider it down in verse 5. We won't talk about that this morning. We want to kind of set the stage with our, our death in trespasses and sins. And so he says, notice that, that conjunction, and. Another one of those unfortunate chapter breaks in the Bible. It's a continuation of what we've been looking at in chapter 1. But what we're going to see here is it's a, it's a contrast. He finished chapter one talking about believers being members of Christ's body. He finished talking about believers being vibrant and alive and full of power and having the, the power of God who raised Jesus from the dead at work in us. This is what he's been talking about. And that we could actually fulfill the will of God, the will of Jesus Christ on earth by how filling the world with himself being all in all, filling the world, every nook and cranny, as we said last week, with Jesus Christ. So we come off this like incredible high. We're on the mountaintop of high, if you will. Exciting. And this is why Paul's gonna now go back and give us a flashback. And guess what? You weren't always on the top of the mountain. I love the song we sang leading in this morning, Graves in the Gardens, right? He's the God of the mountain, We've been looking at that in chapter one, and now we're going to look at he was there in the valley for you too. In fact, he was the one that, if we could just use illustrative language, he was the one that picked you up and carried you to where you needed to be, to the top of the mountain. And you know what? I will never climb Mount Everest, but if someone wants to carry me on their back and take me up there, I'll go. I volunteer for that trip. And you know what? And that's what salvation's like. Jesus Christ taking you on his back and taking you to the peaks. But before we get there, we have to see that he is talking about this dark and despicable past of every believer dead in trespasses and sins. What does that mean? It's a, it's a great question. You know, we typically, when we think of death, uh, we think of a loss of life. We think of to be lifeless. We think of inactivity. This is typically what we think of when we think of the word dead. No life, no ability, no activity, dead. However, we know for a fact this cannot be what Paul's talking about here. Now, how do we know that? Because if this is what we're talking about in verse 1, it's a pretty lively corpse when we get to verse 2. It's actually doing things. In fact, he begins to take this phrase, dead in trespasses and sins, and he begins to explain how active we were in this state. So it's not lifeless, it's not non-activity, it's not you can't do anything, that's not what it's talking about at all. It's simply saying that we are dead, spiritually dead, separated from the life of God. And this is what he's gonna build off of once we get to chapter five. And this is what we have to remember, and I'll probably say this a bunch, but it's probably good for us to hear it over and over and over again. Jesus Christ does not just give life, he gives himself. He is life. He is your eternal life. He's not just doling out playing cards and you're like, oh, sweet, I got the ace card. I got life. No, Jesus Christ himself is life. He's your source of life. You are united with him. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were united in Christ and you were raised to newness of life. That's how you're alive. That's how you have eternal life. This is why you can't lose eternal life because you can never be severed from Jesus Christ. This is why it's so important to understand. This isn't just God doling out things and then taking them back if you misbehave. No, God is all in. He has connected you and united you with Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to find out about next week. Verses four, five, and six. So he's not talking about, you know, non-activity. In fact, this quick flashback is going to give us perspective, better perspective and appreciation for what you have in the present. Looking back to where you came from is going to is designed to give us more of an appreciation for what we've got right now. And that's, I think, the goal of Paul. So in contrast to being made alive, we're going to see in verse five, this deadness spoken of must refer to spiritual death. Remember, death by definition is separation. And what that means is simply this, is when you and I were born physically into this world, we were born separated from God. We were born spiritually dead. We had no spiritual life to speak of. We were separated from God. And that's why what he accomplishes in Jesus Christ and what he's going to go on to teach us in chapter two is that he took you and he united you to the very source of life. His name is Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus Christ. It's always centered in a person. Thus, to be spiritually dead means to be separated from God who is spiritual life. And so being a part of Christ's body or being before being a part of Christ's bodies. We were living in a state of spiritual death and it had certain activities associated with it. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And the activities could be summarized by this picture and by this statement. I think every mom and dad of little boys in history has a picture like this somewhere. This is what they do. This is what they, and not just little boys. I mean, little girls too. It's a mess. And this is what Paul's going to go on to say. Look at, look at how he words it in verse one. Go back to your, to your Bibles and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead in the sphere, if you will, of trespasses and sins. And not only that, but Paul actually even brings more attention to it. It's emphatic. He's making this sphere emphatic by articulating trespasses and sins. The trespasses, these sins. He's bringing attention to this, that this is the fear in which we functioned. Trespasses. You know, a lot of people will make try to make a lot of distinction between these two words, and there's there's a little bit of a distinction in meaning, but there's not a lot of distinction in, in in the words themselves. Trespasses refers more to a violation of moral standards, and it represents a general moral failure. This word does not necessarily excuse one of being culpable or responsible. A lot, and in fact, if you jump down to verse. Um, Five, it's the same exact word there translated in some versions, transgressions. You know, typically, when we, talk, when we talk about transgressions, when we use that word, we typically think that someone knew the standard and then they intentionally broke it. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes that word is what's represented here. But sometimes it can be an accidental breaking. It's either voluntary or non-voluntary, depending on the context. Sins is the same way, although sin emphasis here on this word is more of a missing the mark or the standard. Again, it could be intentional. It could be like, you you know, you thumbed your nose at at God's standard and you went after it or unintentional. The point is, is that the mark or the standard was missed. In order to further develop this this contrast, Paul is going to describe in detail for us in the next couple of verses, how how bad spiritual death really was. He's going to describe why no reform would do. And this is what, this is what unbelievers over the world and every religion don't understand because they think they're not so bad if they can just get gooder and just do more better things and they stop doing the bad things that they can somehow appease and please and obtain a righteousness equal to God's or that God would if if he just had uh, if he just knew my heart you know I don't want to be bad I want to be good then God would look at my heart and accept me this is the problem that they don't understand it's such a precarious situation because They have no spiritual life, no amount of reform, no amount of effort could ever give it to them. They need life infused from an outside source. That's what they need. It is impossible by human standards, but praise God, it's possible by divine standards, by divine plan. God put it all together. But this is the situation. They need to understand, and you know, I, I, I heard this illustration from somewhere, but it's like some people think that they were in terms of a beauty contest for righteousness, and that they, were, they would entered into the beauty contest, and they were just like one crooked tooth away from winning it all, and it's like, man, if I could just get into a dentist, and he can just fix that tooth, I'll win the beauty pageant, and what we don't understand, it's just the opposite, it's like somebody puts you on a tall tree in the Amazon jungle, And you literally hit every branch on the way down, beat up, torn up, bruised up, busted up, ugly as sin, if I could use that (laughs) phrase, not even close to winning a beauty contest. And yet so many people think that's where they were. So many people think that's how they, how they approach God, how they got just barely across the finish line. I remember hearing about a lady that one time was sharing her testimony, and said, yep, I got saved. Just got saved. I went to this conference. I got saved. And somebody asked her, well, I forget her name, but she's, they said, so when did you realize you were a sinner and deserving of going to hell? And she's like, Psh, what are you talking about? I'm not a sinner. I, I never deserved to go to hell. And right there in that statement, you realized she probably didn't understand what was going on. She, they probably heard her up front. She probably raised her hand, prayed a prayer, didn't even know what she was saying. Didn't understand the necessity of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we see this. So when it came to righteousness, we were an absolute undesirable. Undesirable. We had nothing going for us. Nothing. It wasn't like, oh, well, you know, he's got, she's got cute eyes. You know, nothing ugly stick hit every part of our righteous being, if you will. Nothing going for us. And God, in the midst of that mess and the mud and the goo and the mire and the clay, he says, I can do something with this one. I can do something with this one. In fact, I can do something with all of them if they'll simply trust in my solution for them, stop trying to crank it out on their own, stop trying to pursue it on their own, and trust in the one that I sent to die for them and rise Again, God had it all taken care of. Paul is going to further develop this concept of being dead in sin. So we see what a predicament we were in. In fact, we see in the past, we had a certain course of conduct. Verse two, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And you'll see that this course of conduct that we're about to look at is is described. You're going to see a repeated phrase here, according to, according to. He's going to repeat it twice. And what we're going to see is that the course of conduct that we lived in was according to the course of this world, and it was according to the prince of the power of the air. And we'll develop those more as we continue to go forward. But this word in which refers back to the sins. There's a, there's a connection there in gender and number to, to the word sins. But he's talking about this whole concept, being dead in this sphere, in which, in this sphere is how we lived our life before we were saved. And this is how the Ephesian believers lived in this condition day to day before they trusted in Christ. And he says that in which, in this sphere of influence, we walked. And the word walks means means to walk or tread about. It's It's interesting. It's got a little preposition on the front that means around. You know, the hamster wheel concept. I mean, it's it's kind of there. You can kind of pick that up. But the the thing that is representative of it here is this is how they lived. This was their conduct of life. It wasn't like they just did it once in a while. And then no, this was the course of their life. This is how they rolled, so to speak. This is how they just rolled through life doing all of these things. And so we see the first according to. And according to gives us kind of a a, a measurement, if you will. Gives us the idea of, of conformity to this standard. And it tells us the standard by which the Ephesian believers walked in, conducted their life before they were saved. And you know what? The same can be said of us. Before we get too far, and I'll probably say this again, when you're going through this section, especially if you got got saved later in life, or even if you got saved early in life, oftentimes you go to this section, and inevitably you're going to think in your mind, well, I wasn't that bad when I was unsaved. You know, I... I still didn't cuss and I didn't drink and I didn't chew tobacco. And, you know, and I was, I was a good kid. I, I did what my parents said. I got home, and you know, before my curfew. And you, you might, the whole way through might be struggling through, like, oh, I wasn't that bad. Some people were, like I've seen them, but I wasn't that bad. But the point of this passage, and we'll draw this out, is that regardless of how you felt and regardless of what you did and didn't do, Whether you realized it or not, you were living your life dominated, influenced, and controlled by these outlying factors. And let me just tell you this. Satan isn't just into licentious, gross, perverted sins. He's also into religion. That might be a shock. He's into morality. That might also be a shock because he knows Enough to know that if he can distract you from god 's solution in Jesus Christ, he has succeeded that 's the point. And see, many good people in fact, insert example of the sweet grandmother that you 're thinking about right now, whether it 's your grandmother, your neighbor that you had, the sweet old woman who was nice, baked apple pie, always had smelt like cookies. I mean whatever your image of, of this woman is. And you know that if she was unsaved, this is also true of her, that she walked and conducted her life according to, as the verse says, the course of this world. And then let's get it even a little bit more crazy and out there. The next phrase, that she actually walked and lived her life according to the prince of the power of the air. You mean Satan was influencing my sweet grandmother? Yes, that may shock us. I know she smelled like chocolate chip cookies. I know she had an endless supply of milk. I mean, I get it. But this is what the word of God says. And we want to unpackage that a little bit more. Paul uses this this Greek word, "ion," for course, which denotes an age or a time duration that belongs to this world. So we know that the age that each one of us lives in seeks to conform us or mold us into its own pattern. Let's go back to Romans chapter 12. It's been a few months since we've been there. Romans 12, two, and you may remember this from then or you may not, and that's totally fine. This is why we're going there. Romans 12, two, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but that word world is our word age, okay? It's the word course in Ephesians two. It's this idea of time duration that belongs to a certain time period. And notice this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And you know what that tells me is this: Paul's writing to believers in Romans, it tells me that you and I can still be shaped and molded and fashioned according to this age. We can still be influenced by the world, the age that we live in, whether that is Influence towards sin, influence toward religion, influence toward a, a manner of thinking and approach to life. It is constantly this world system trying to mold you, shape you, form you, pressure you, squeeze you, drive you into a mold where you as a believer would be ineffective for Jesus Christ. That's the goal. And you know what? The world, the age that we live in is very successful as we look around. And even as we look in the mirror, let's not get it too far out there, right? So even as we look in the mirror, we see how successful the world, the age that we live in has. You know what? When you were unsaved, you didn't even have a shot. <laughs> you were shaped. You were molded. You were fashioned according to the age that you live in. And, you know, for, for Paul's readers, they were formerly unbelievers living in Ephesus. They were living in a Roman world that, that time period of the time and they lived just as any other unbelievers lived. They lived exactly the way that any other unbelievers live. What's fascinating about that is it's, it's kind of sad. It's kind of disgusting. But the, the age that they lived in was highly pagan, was highly idolatrous, and was a sexually immoral culture. Highly off the charts. I, I mean, I know... I know we think the culture in America is getting bad, and it is going downhill, no doubt about it. It it held no candle to this. It held no candle to this culture. What's also fascinating about it is these Ephesian believers were, as Paul's writing to them, they're roughly two to to six years old in the faith, the, the older ones who trusted Christ early on in Paul's ministry in Ephesus. So he's going back to a memory that's probably still fresh and vibrant in their minds, probably something they're, Disappointed in, disgusted in with themselves. Those of us that either got saved later in life or, or started taking spiritual things serious later in life, we could go around the room with you and we could talk about the things that we are disgusted with ourselves for doing, that we are disappointed that we did, that we engaged in. It's almost, it's almost embarrassing. It would be embarrassing if they put it up on a big screen. You know, many of us would never come back to the church. We'd be so embarrassed to show our face based on the life that we had lived. And you know, for the Ephesian believers, this is exactly where they where they were. They had engaged in some pretty, wild, and crazy stuff. And, and you might say it this way, they they know, they know what kind of ditch they were pulled from when they trusted in Christ. They know what kind of hole they were brought out of when they trusted in Christ. They knew it. It was fresh in their minds. And that's why when you see this flashback and then you go back to chapter one and you compare it, you're like, oh my God, he is incredible. I cannot believe he took someone like me and he did what he did for me in chapter one. It ought to just blow our minds. And I think it did that for the Ephesian Believers, it's also important to know, and I mentioned this, not all people live according to the licentious age that we grow up in. Not all people do that. Some people live according to the religious age of the world the moral age. Maybe you grew up in a family that had strong moral values, but they didn't. They didn't take you to church. You didn't trust in Christ. They, they didn't even talk about Jesus Christ, but they were like really good Americans, good patriots, and they, and they laid down the law. They taught you hard work. They taught you, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all these good moral values. And so you grew up according to that age. But you know what? If morality and religion are bought into apart from Jesus Christ. They will distract you from Jesus Christ and you could sit in the front row pew or chair if pews are more holy and you're thinking, you, you could sit in a pew or a front row chair and you could slide right off your pew into hell if you're trusting in religion, if you're trusting in morality, if you're trusting in being wanting to be that grandma that's gonna pass out cookies in your your 80s and 90s, if that's your goal in life, then I'm here to tell you, God's got something better. You didn't need reform. You didn't need improvement. You need resurrection life. You need to be attached to somebody that can take you through death, never to die again. And that's Jesus Christ. And this is where Paul is going with all of this. But sometimes we get so uh, distracted. We think if we're living according to the world, that that means we're doing sinful things. And then if we're not doing sinful things, then we're not living according to the world. I got news for you. Every time we walk according to the flesh, we're living according to the world. We, we are being controlled and influenced and dominated by the sin nature. Whether it's manifesting itself in grossly sinful things or not is not the point. The point is, is you are not effective for Jesus Christ when you're out of fellowship with Jesus Christ as a believer. And But as, a, as an unbeliever, they didn't even have a choice. <laughs> they were just swayed and pulled and molded Uh, According to the world, this is what Paul is getting into. By the way, morality in religion is equally dirty, disgusting, and offensive to God. That may not be true for us. I'd probably rather like a a cleaned up religious guy sitting next to me than, you know, some bum that's, you know, addicted to, uh, you know, heroin that's going to be, you know, I got to watch my wallet and all. I mean, I get it on a practical level. But from God's perspective, they're both deeply offensive and disgusting. And I don't think we understand that probably to the fullest. I I even have, as I'm talking, it's hard to kind of wrap our minds around that. As we transition to the next according to, you know, the unbeliever was walking in accordance with the temporal world, but this is what really blows me away. He or she was also walking in accordance with or control of the ruler of the realm of the air. Who is that? It's none other than Satan himself. That's who it is. Let's just kind of jump to the punchline. That ought to blow us away. That is an unbeliever. Every unbeliever. And I want you to think about people in your life that are unbelievers. They are walking and living their life not only according to the age that we live in, which by the way, does media want to shape the way people think right now? You better believe it. Does, does advertising want to control what you put your priority in? Did all the Facebook uh, pictures of your friend in Hawaii make you want to go to Hawaii? That's what I'm missing in life. A trip to Hawaii will solve everything. And then you go to Hawaii. And you're like, ooh, that didn't solve it. That didn't solve my problems in my marriage. I thought it would. I thought if I, we sat out on the beach and I just, you know made it rain to the servants that brought us drinks that we could get this marriage thing together. Oh no, another friend, they went skiing in the Swiss Alps. I'll try that. And we have all these things trying to to shape and pull. And not only that, but now we find out that Satan himself is at work to sway and to pull unbelievers in the way that he wants. He literally is the puppet master up there pulling strings that's frightening. I mean, that's frightening to know what kind of precarious situation each one of us was in. In fact, I want you to notice all three enemies uh, of the believer are mentioned here. We've got the world mentioned in verse 2. We just looked at that 2a. We've got the devil mentioned here, and then we're gonna have the flesh mentioned in verse 3. This is what being dead in trespasses and sin looks like. These three enemies dominating every aspect of our life from the time we wake up till the time we go to bed. Everything, thoughts, motivations, all those things dominated by these three enemies when we were unsaved. We see that the scriptures teach us that Satan is the prince or ruler over the following of demons. We see that in the account in Matthew 12. We see that he's the prince or the ruler of this world. This is why the world and the age is swaying people away from Jesus Christ, forming and shaping people away from thinking biblically because Satan is swaying the world in this way. And so an unbeliever walks in sin, he or she does so according to Satan's bidding. Satan literally is pulling strings on unbelievers to do what they do. And, and you know, it ought to give us perspective as a believer when you're in the workplace, when you're in the marketplace, when you're in the neighborhood and an aggressive unbeliever comes up to you and puts their finger in your face for no apparent reason or gets aggressive with you, yells at you, screams at you, does something that you don't like, we should be able to take a step back 30,000 foot view and understand what's motivating them and and stop attacking unbelievers. (laughs) Unbelievers are not your problem. The, The system with which they are being influenced is the problem. And so what's the solution? Get them out of the system. How do you get them out of the system? Share the gospel with them. They need to know what Christ did for them. They are not happy. They are miserable in this state of life. They don't even realize they're a slave. They don't realize they're in bondage. And we have the answer that can set them free. And the answer is found in a person. Life is found in a person. Freedom is found in a person. Peace is found in a person. Joy is found in a person. Love, everyone looking for love. In all the wrong places, right? But love is also found in the same person. You got a great answer. We have a great answer. We have the only answer. That's what I love about that song. You're the only one who can. That's what the song we sang earlier. Jesus, you're the only one who can. You know, that's still true today. Still true of every unbeliever that you know. So instead of getting fired up and upset with an unbeliever by the way they're treating you, help them get delivered from the system. They're under a lot of control here. There are a lot of influence there. And this is what the scriptures teach. You know that 1 John 1, 1.5 says it this way. We know that we are of God, speaking of believers, and the whole world, notice this description, lies under the sway of the wicked one. It shouldn't surprise us to hear and to read what we're talking about in Ephesians 2. John 10.10 10 says that Satan is like a thief. And he comes for three reasons. Now this is the way he comes into the door. I'm here to give you happiness and pleasure and, I'm trying, and I wanna help you. That's what he says. But what does the scripture say that Satan is there for? Three reasons, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And I want you to think quickly about every unbeliever that you know. That's what Satan's trying to accomplish in their life. He wants to hurt them. He wants to destroy them. And this is why marriages don't stay together. This is why relationships can't be had. Now, it's, it's true of believers, too. It happens to believers just as much as it happens to unbelievers. But unbelievers have no chance. They've, they've got nothing to combat everything that's swirling around them, attacking them from all different fronts. They need a savior, they need a deliverance, they need to be delivered from these influences. And guess what? You and I were there at one point, whether we realized it or not, we were in that precarious situation and praise God for the person, whoever they were in your life that had the guts and the courage and and probably worked through fear. You know, the guy, the guy that led DL Moody, you've heard of DL Moody, the guy that led DL Moody to Jesus Christ was his Sunday school teacher. And he was so, uh, he taught Sunday school, but he wanted to go reach out to these young men in his class individually. And one day it came and he said, I'm going to go see D.L. Moody. I'm going to go see him. And he's working in a shoe store and I'm going to go share Christ with him. And the man was so nervous that he walked all the way to the shoe store. He got to the front door and he's like, ah, oh, and he turned around. He's going to leave. So nervous. He, you ever felt the butterflies in your stomach? This is how this man felt. And so he went in, and he says, all right, well, if he's here, Lord, I'm going to share the gospel. So he goes into the store and, there's, and he doesn't see him. And he's like, oh, whew, I don't have to do it. But he asked the guys, is Deal Moody here? He said, oh yeah, he's in the back storage room, stacking shoes. And he went back there and based on his testimony, he went back there, nervous is all good out, could barely get the words out, doesn't even remember what he said, drops off the hand grenade of the gospel and then leaves. <laughs> and Deal Moody got saved, right? There's a the young man. And then his life impacted thousands, millions probably. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's not the messenger, it's the message. We got a message. We can communicate. There's opportunities to communicate this message, and the world needs it. Somebody shared it with you. We can share it with others. You know, one of the things that we also see from verse 2 is that it says this this spirit, the the, the spirit of Satan now works in the sons of disobedience. The very same spirit of Satan who worked in Ephesian believers before their salvation is the very same spirit that's working in the sons of disobedience or unbelievers in Paul's day and also in our day. Very same spirit of disobedience. And this is in stark contrast because we saw this, this Greek word earlier. Remember in the power verse of the Bible we said last week, Ephesians 1:19? energeo is the verb. It's where we get our word energy from. It's talking about active, operating, effective power. Now Paul uses that same word to describe the way Satan works in unbelievers. Active, relentless, operative. This is what the word means, efficient. That again ought to frighten us that Satan at one point in time had his claws in you. And was trying to keep his claws in you. Is it any wonder that when Jesus talks about the building of his church. He says it this way. The gates of hell shall not prevail. That's offensive. We're literally the gospel is bursting down gates. Dragging people to their salvation if you will. Because Satan has got his grimy dirty hooks. In everybody that's ever born into this world. That ought to just blow our minds. And you know what? He's relentless to keep his hooks in people. He's relentless to distract people, to keep a veil over their understanding, to confuse people. He's relentless in his efforts to do those very things. And the phrase shows us that Satan is still actively doing this to the sons of disobedience or sons who are unwilling to be persuaded That is the most tragic thing is when you're talking to somebody about the gospel, they say, you know, I understand what you're saying, but I just am not persuaded. I just don't think I agree with you. I see it. You showed me from the word of God. I, I like what you're saying, but I'm just not sure. My grandma was a Methodist. And I'm like, I'm not even talking about denominations. It, denominations, I, who care? I mean, literally, that's the least thing of my importance. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? Because this is why John makes it real simple. He who has the Son has life. But he who does not have the Son does not have life. But the wrath of God abides on him. See, it's all about having the Son. And how do you get the Son? You put your faith And the son, because he's the one who died for you and rose again, that's how you get the son. And when you have him and you're united to him, you have life because you have him. That's important thing to remember. Now, how does Satan work? Well, you know, many times, you know, we could go through scripture, but he does this actively interfering in in people's understanding and consideration of the gospel message. Mark four, the parable of the sower. He's the bird that comes along and takes away the seed so it can't be planted in the minds of people. Second Corinthians 4, he keeps the veil on people. He distracts them from the gospel message. Other times he actively tries to tempt or to try people with temptations because he wants to trip them up. He wants to kill, steal and destroy. And how does he do that? Well, he engages them, trips them up into sin, and then guess what? Sin always produces death. This is why we have an opioid epidemic. In the nation, This is why we have a drug problem in the nation. Satan doesn't care about their pleasure. He's trying to destroy people who are addicted. This is why we have a pornography problem. He's not trying to give guys pleasure or trying to provide for them outside of their marriage. He is trying to destroy people. He is trying to destroy marriages. He is trying to destroy children. He is trying to destroy churches. He does not care about you. He does not care about you. I think we know that. And yet oftentimes we go right along with his schemes, even as a believer, when we have resources that far outweigh the benefit of anything that little joker has to offer. And yet many times that's exactly what we do. We go right back to him. We go right back to him. We go right back to him and we just continue to present ourselves to sin. And we continue to agree artificially to be dominated by him. This is what he's doing to unbelievers. They don't have a choice in the matter. They are dominated by this diabolical, maniacal psychopath that's trying to kill them. You know what he also does? He actively distracts them with religion and good things. You know, the most dangerous people on the planet when Jesus was alive to Jesus was not the Roman soldiers, It was the clergy. It was the the guys wearing the robes. It was the the guys who knew more scripture than anybody else in the day. They were the dangerous ones. And this is why Jesus in in John 8, 44, he says, you do what your father does. And they're like, oh, you mean Abraham? He's like, no, the devil. (laughs) It's like, you guys are unsaved. You you guys are just doing exactly what, what your father does, which is to kill and steal, and destroy. Verse three, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. You know, we lived in the midst of these sons of disobedience, mentioned in verse two. And not only did we live among unbelievers, but we also conducted ourselves just like them. We, we lived just like them before we got saved. And this word conducted means to return and, and turn back again. It means we, it's like we kept going back to our vomit, right? You've, you've heard that, the dog goes back to its vomit. That's what it is. It's this returning and turning. It's a certain lifestyle reflected here. And, and notice, by the way, and this is where we're all included. How many of the believers are said to have conducted themselves this way? Look at verse three. It's all. All of us conducted ourselves this way. All of us lived under the sway of the age that we found ourselves in. We all lived under the sway of the devil. And this shows us that the sin nature, this is is important, indwelling every human being at birth is the automatic source of our life. Until we're born again. It's what automatically controls us. In fact, if you, as a believer who still have a sin nature, live your life in neutral mentally, you will walk according to this. This is our default mode in these human bodies. It's the walk according to the flesh. It just shows us that how dominating this sin nature was as the source of every unbeliever's life. And where did this fear execute this type of lifestyle? In the lust of their flesh. A lot of times we look at that word lust and we automatically assume sexual lust. It's, it's really not inherent in this word, okay? That is part of the lust, but it, it means to desire greatly. It means deep longings. We have lots of different lusts. It doesn't have to be just sexual. Some, we, we lust for power. We lust for significance. We lust for the, for the ability to, for someone to think well of us or to think that we're smart. We could even lust in a Bible study trying to make a comment about the scriptures, hoping that everyone now thinks that we're the smartest person in the room. That still falls in the category of lusting. You're desiring something that brings you glory and lifts you up. And here's one of the things about unbelievers. Not only did they lust after it, but they fulfilled the desires of their mind. They didn't just live a lifestyle of thinking this way, they actually accomplished a lot of these lusts in person. And so fulfilling, that's what the word means. It means to do. It means to actually energize and, and do these events. And it's not just talking about a one-time event. It's talking about a lifestyle here. This was the lifestyle of an unbeliever. They're, they would lust. They would want something. They would do it. They would lust after something. They would get it. It's kind of the idea that we see here. That's what drove them in life was, was their lust. It's kind of like the theologian, Ariana Grande. I see it. I like it. I want it. I got it, right? And if you didn't get that joke. It's okay. You, 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 got the, you got the point. If I see something, I like it. I want it. I'm going to go get it. That is how unbelievers lived. That's how we lived as unbelievers. It doesn't mean you wanted necessarily licentiously terrible, sinful things. It's just that this was your approach to life. I see it. I want it. I like it. I got it. That's the approach. That was the approach of an unbeliever. And by the way, if that's not bad enough, there's more. Look at the end of verse three. Not only did we fulfill the desires of the flesh of the mind, but then check out this last statement. We were by nature children of wrath, just like others just like others. And see, this is what most unbelievers don't realize. This is the precarious nature of where we were at the day before we trusted in Christ. We were children of wrath. John three thirty six. check this out. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What does the word abide mean? It means remains. It means it stays there by their very natures of who they are in Adam. God's wrath is hovering over them like a cloud ready to strike. Is, is kind of the picture that we have there. Now, God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. This is why he sent his son. But the truth of the matter is this. Nobody knows they have tomorrow. Nobody knows they have the next minute. And if someone, whoever falls under the, the, the hearing of this teaching, has never put their faith in Jesus Christ, don't put it off a second longer. Because this is the situation that you find yourself in. God's wrath abiding on you, remaining on you because your righteousness will never equal the righteousness that he wants to provide for you in his son. You are dead in trespasses and sins. You need life outside of yourself. You cannot produce life. Only God can produce life and he's provided it in his son. We want to close there this morning but I just want to give a sneak peek because it's it's so much fun. The very next phrase and the very next verse is our pivot. We can get out of the flashback now to, to see how desperately dark, dirty, and disgusting it was. And then you introduce these next two words, but God, and everything changes. Everything changes. We'll look at that next week. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for what you have accomplished in Jesus Christ and where you have brought us from. And Lord, for those who have never trusted in you, I pray that this moment they would wait no longer. They would recognize that Jesus died for their sins. He paid it in full so that they would never have to pay that penalty and that you accepted his sacrifice on their behalf by raising him from the dead. And then for those of us who have trusted in Christ, Lord, may we just really see the value and appreciate the way that you have worked to bring us from such a, a, a low depth of lowness up to a depth or, or a, uh, just a incredible heights in Christ and that we might appreciate and value what you've done even more. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.